Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Doxville co-founder Lawrence Ellman about the challenges of the company's new COVID-19 focused film 2020, The Story of Us. And Derry Girls creator Lisa McGee on the Northern Ireland based sitcom's success around the world. Award-winning documentary maker Lawrence Ellman co-founded streamer and producer Doxville alongside former BBC Storyville editor Nick Fraser five years ago. Hong Kong-based Lightning International acquired the business earlier this year and Ellman spoke to Clive Whittingham about new COVID-19-focused film 2020 The Story of Us as well as the funding challenges facing Factual in a post-pandemic world plus the impact of the UK's BBC4 ceasing original commissions. I'm Lawrence Elman. I created a company called Doxville Studios with Nick Fraser, who was the editor and creator of Storyville at the BBC. We originally were a digital streaming platform, which we um, merged with a company in Hong Kong recently called Lightning. Um, and what we do is we make films, mostly international films that have an international flair and vibe. And we'd like to tell stories. The doc- that we've come to to talk about specifically today first of all um is 2020 the story of us tagline basically it's a doc about covid but it's obviously so much more than that why don't you give us the skinny on this uh, on this project well i'll tell you how it came about about two and a half years ago nick and i met with a man named hugh montgomery and a foundation called the ics the intensive care society and they were looking for a company to make a documentary about the icu intensive care units through this was two and a half years ago throughout the UK because there was a dialogue needed to be had about what the ICU is because it's kind of this weird rock star unit in the middle of a hospital and people see on television you know that thing of clear and they're getting you know electric shocks and everyone thinks that that's ICU and the reality is ICU is a very um, odd place in the medicine lexicon and that's because when you go into ICU you normally they'll keep you alive because that's what their job is but most everything else is ignored you know so your humanity your spirit your soul your who you are is not actually part of the process of being an ICU because all that you're doing there is being kept alive. And so when you come out of ICU, a lot of times you're worse off than you were when you went in, but you're alive. And so there was a dialogue that we all wanted to open up about care and intensive care and what that actually means and what that means for quality versus quantity of life. And while we were doing that, we got to the end of our research and we were about to start doing it. We had identified, we had seen about 40 hospitals, identified three that we were going to work with, and we were about to go and start making it. And this was December, I guess, 2019. And Hugh Montgomery said that we were about to get hit by something coming from China. This was December. People didn't hadn't really heard about it yet. And he said, we should think about making a film about it. And so in January, we saw it coming and we went, let's pivot and let's make a film about COVID through the prism of the ICU. And because we had already done all the legwork and we had already gone through all the work with the different trusts, we were already embedded with them. And so we were able to pivot very quickly and we started filming or we started collecting footage because there was a lot of user generated content but we started collecting footage probably a month before lockdown was even discussed the preparations and the the girding of their loins while they waited for this um, pandemic to hit and so that's how it came about and to go one step further we then started thinking well where are we going to get this made and there was a lot of people who were making films who are in that 
genre of making films, uh, medical films, whether it's in the hospitals and whatever. And we, we're not one of them. We just tell stories. And so a lot of the broadcasters had already spoken to their regular production companies who make those, and they had committed to quick turnaround projects. And we were never going to be a quick turnaround project. We had always envisioned that we were going to spend a year figuring out what this was all about. And we were going to make a film that was not necessarily news, but it's not necessarily political, not even kind of scientific, but we were going to tell a story of what was happening to us. And Nick and Kevin had worked before on a number of films, One Day in September being one of them. And so we spoke to Kevin and he said, this is an important film I'd like to get involved. And that's Kevin McDonald. And so we then had a team and we had access. And so we went around talking to people to find out who was interested. And to the great credit of ITV that doesn't necessarily make these types of films, Joe Clinton Davis had said to me, she goes, you know, I think there's a space for these type of, I guess she called them blue plate films with, you know, great narrative that, that of course the BBC and Channel 4 are kind of more known for, but she wanted to see if they could enter into the space and ITV to their credit, they supported it. And so we put together a budget and they um, they took part of that budget. Yeah, and we delivered a film. That's how it all came about. Like you say, it's not a, it's not a medical hospital documentary as, as we would have seen before. Were you able to stick to that idea that you had right at the start of exploring the ethics and things like that behind the ICU through the pandemic or did it kind of pivot in a different direction because of uh, because of COVID for people that haven't seen it? That's a really good question. It pivoted. So we got some of that in, some of that concept and, and that thought process of what ICU means and what does life mean and what does death mean, but not really. I mean, to be honest, we're going to we're gonna make the ICU series eventually also, so that's going to happen. But but what happened was when we were, what, what I mean by this not being a medical or a scientific or a political film, we started collecting material from everyone and filming some of the material ourselves. And we started to realize, and Kevin pointed it out very early on, because it was very difficult. It was very difficult for the editor, David Charup, who's, I personally think, the, one of the greatest editors working today, you know, was struggling to figure out where is, how's this all going to fit together? Because there was, the film ended up with seven characters, but we had footage of probably 35 different characters. And, and so we had to figure out how to fit it all together. And the thing that Kevin always said to us as we were doing this and what he was always working towards was follow the strong characters, follow the characters and they'll lead to other characters. And so what this film's become is a film about people and characters. It's an, it's why it's universal. It's absolutely based in the UK. It's absolutely based in the ICU departments uh, of hospitals within the NHS remit. But it, it is a film that when you watch it, you could be anywhere because these are people who have gone through extraordinary things. So the short, the long answer to your short question, which which I just gave, is that the reason it's not a science film or a political film or an international news film is because we remain very, very localized to the characters and following what happened to them and what their journey was. And some of them were doctors, some of them were nurses, some of them were patients. Can you talk to us a little bit about the practicalities of filming it? Like you said, you had the access and you were sort of embedded at the start, but I presume hospitals during this pandemic, the last thing they need is more people around that don't need to be there and filming in an intensive care unit in London during all of this. Can you just talk a little bit about the practicalities of getting it filmed? There was heavy protocols, to be honest with you. So so it was not easy. But once things started to kind of on the curve, started to kind of curve down from the peak, we were able to enter the hospitals with a tiny crew. Our shooting director, Dan Dewsbury, had already made the hospital, you know, the documentary for the series hospital embedded in a hospital right at the beginning of it. So he understood the protocols and he 
understood what was needed and how the equipment needed to be managed, how they had to control themselves and be in all sorts of protective equipment. And so we, we went through training sessions, protocols, insurance, back and forth with the trusts to make sure that whatever we were doing was within the remit of, of safety, basically. And I think all, all the times in the hospital, it was only a two-person crew. Kevin wasn't in the hospitals because he wasn't allowed. They weren't allowed to be more than that. And, and there was a huge amount of compliance and insurance issues that we had to make sure were covered. And so we were dictated to, in, in a positive way, and I don't mean as a dictator, but we were instructed and led by what the trusts were comfortable with, what the doctors were comfortable with, and making sure that we were never in the way of anyone's care. That's relationship building, surely. You, like hospitals, you've got to, like building a relationship with the hospital so they trust you to come in and film this. We ended up at the hospitals that we had spent the time doing the research for the ICU series originally. That's where we ended up being. We had tried, once we were already with those hospitals, we had tried a couple of other hospitals and we, we got to the point where, where the conversations were open and we had conversations, but they, they didn't go anywhere further. We weren't, we, we weren't given access to hospitals that hadn't already spent time with us. That's understandable. You know, the NHS and NHS England and, and the practitioners and the trusts, of course, are all very worried about people coming in and creating content that is, has a negative impact. Um, and that was never our goal, uh, as you can see from the film. But, you know, we, we weren't glossing over anything, but it wasn't about, the, weirdly enough, it wasn't actually about the hospitals. It wasn't actually about anything but care. That's what the film's all about. And there's a moment in the film, is, um, which I, I, I'm sure you, you'll remember, whoever's seen it, it's at the end because Hugh Montgomery is sitting there with one of the patients, um, the poet Michael Rosen, and a nurse comes in and sees him. And she's clearly overwhelmed that he's alive because she didn't know he, he lived. And she says she's happy to see him and she leaves and Michael Rosen bursts into tears and Hugh doesn't know why. And Michael just says the care, strangers just caring for me. The care is unbelievable. And, and that's really what the film's about. And that's why it's global. That's what nurses it's why nurses are nurses. It's why doctors are doctors. It's why people work in the medical profession is because they're there to care for people. It's what they want. That's a basic universal philosophy. You mentioned Joe Clinton Davis was the champion for this at, at ITV. Firstly, was it was it pitched around a lot of places? And secondly, was it a tough sell to ITV or elsewhere? Because when we've talked to commissioners through this, they've often told us they're not in the market for COVID projects because people are living COVID every day. They want escapism when they put the television on in the evening they don't want COVID projects. I just wondered how this came to land at ITV and whether it was a tough sell. The series was eventually in discussion with another broadcaster as a series that we had been working on for two and a half years. And when we pivoted, we went to that broadcaster and they were interested, but they went with one of their regular providers of medical content, which I completely yeah. understand. And the other broadcaster, which of course we have a relationship a lot because of Nick Fraser was BBC and they all had their teams. They had done hospital with a COVID special. So it wasn't something that they had felt that they needed to have. And then, you know, I thought, well, I'll write to Jo. Um, I hadn't seen her in a while. She's very smart. She's also kind of clever narrative-wise. And she bit. She kind of went, I really like this. And and we had a number of conversations, but it, it wasn't a hard sell. I mean, I don't know if it was a hard sell for her internally to Kevin Ligo and to the team, but she supported it. She got it. The thing that she got more than anything was the fact that it was a long gestation period. There wasn't a six-week term 
turnover and it wasn't going to be like a lot of the other films, you know, because there was a lot of films that were similar. And she felt that this would be something that could be UK based and will talk to what the country's gone through, through the lens of the ICU. And to be honest, it wasn't difficult. Where it is difficult, and this is where I, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys, whoever listens to this, will be interested. The film's very strong. We're very proud of it. And when broadcasters internationally or other platforms internationally look at it, the testimonials that they give it and, and that how extraordinary it is and it's, you know, it's the characters stick with you for, for a long time. They're not biting because there's too much material out there about COVID. And and, and you're right, Clive, is that there's a, a tiredness fitting towards it. And, 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 you know, even close friends of mine are saying, you know, I really want to watch your film, but I just don't know if I can bear it. Talk to me about the Doxville involvement in this, because Doxville is is known as a, a, a streamer of documentaries in its own right. Presumably, you need ITV involved to, to get the budget to wherever it had to be. So Doxville Studios is the production arm of Doxville, right? And Doxville Studios is what Nick and I look after mostly. And so it's independently funded. It can be funded through the streaming service. It can be funded however we want to fund it, which is great. And it's underneath the Doxville banner. And so what Doxville has a number of productions. Earlier in the year, we we distributed a, and, and produced a film about Truman Capote called The Capote Tapes. We did a nine-part series on American Apparel and the, the man Dove Charney, which we had done. And we're in production with a, a film that we're co-directing with Luc Besson. There's a ton of content that we're working on that we're funding in many different ways. What we found, and, I, and what everyone's found, is that the finance model of documentaries is different. It's always been different for me. I've always found different ways of funding things. I've rarely worked in a broadcast system unless it was making Storyville films. I always tend to find different ways of financing projects. And so Doxville Studios is the production entity that made the film. We have a very close partnership with Expanded Media, which is a, a company that makes scripted material, and we do the documentaries with them. And we have a great relationship with Will Clark at Altitude, and they've helped us with what we had hoped would be a theatrical release, but of course, there's no theaters. And they've been great partners. Both of them have been great co-producing partners. Altitude has set up a new division, I think, called Altitude Factual. And this is their first documentary, and we're doing more work with both those companies. Um, We tend to be the lead producers on them, and they give us great support because both companies have huge experience internationally, distribution-wise, and finance-wise. So it it, it works for a great team. So it's not not a given that a Doxville, the production arm that you mentioned, it's not a given that the content that comes out of that will automatically go onto the Doxville platform that we see online? Not immediately, but it will eventually. I wonder because obviously I'm, I'm going to come on and talk more generally now because obviously you're very experienced in the genre about documentary funding and where it stands as we head into what we think is going to be an economic problem and also without that theatrical release element to Docs, which can be vital with, with funding. I mean, where are we on getting Docs funded? It was tough enough before all of this. Where where do we land afterwards? That's a difficult question. I think it is tough and I think that the outlets for, well, at least for the material that Nick and I make, the international docs or docs, single docs or not returning series, the windows for those here in the UK are diminishing. I mean, I think I think Sky Docs has picked up a lot of the slack that um, the BBC has um, let go of, which I think is great. And I think they're doing extraordinary material and I think that uh, it's encouraging. The problem is, is that because documentaries have become extraordinarily popular and of course, feature film folks have realized that it's 
there's a quicker pathway to getting a documentary made than there is to getting a feature film, a scripted feature film made. But a lot of people with very stellar track records in, in multi-genres, whether it's television, scripted television, serial television, feature films, and also whether it's acting or, or whatever it is, have entered into the documentary world. It's created a, a marketplace where you need to have that AAA talent attached to somehow get attention. And so where I think it becomes more difficult is in the case of a small film that Nick and I helped exec produce, um, three young women who made their first film about two sisters with epilepsy. And it's a magical film. It's fantastic. And it's not about epilepsy, yet it is. You know, in the way that we make films, Nick and I make films with the Trojan horse, you know, we're, we're going to entertain you and then we're going to, as Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw should first entertain and educate. And so, but we can't get people to look at it. Now, if, if it had a different, you know, if it had someone really well known as a director, someone look at it, you know? And so I think that the problem is not so much that the money isn't there. I think the problem is, is where where is it going? There's been some extraordinary moments in factual content and some of them have been fantastic and some of them have been difficult. And I think that I'm not quite certain the way it's going, but what I can see very clearly is that of course the streamers have a huge amount of power and have a voracious appetite for content. They need it. And some will succeed and some won't. When you look at the facts that Disney Plus is going to surpass Netflix within a few years, and of course they will, you know, kind of they, there was never a doubt that they would. You know, the, the, what what I think we'll find is that they'll have to within the system, within their umbrella tent of let's say Disney Plus, you'll have different strands and there'll be a factual documentary strand, which there kind of is already. So there'll be within the umbrella will be niche places to go. You know, Disney owns baseball, they own Disney films, they own Fox and Simpsons and all that. And so I think there'll be a consolidation of places to platform content, which will mean that there'll be a consolidation of where money will come from, which is what it was like 15 years ago. Or, you know, and so it'll be a cyclical process. But I do think there's plenty of money out there. And I also think that what's happened is, is that private investment has come to the fore for documentaries. And, and there's a lot of that out there, not just foundation money, but proper money. So we hear a lot about a golden age of, of documentary, because like you say, the streamers have realized it's very popular stuff, you know, but mm. at the same time, they're spending mega, mega money on a big Sundance doc. But that doesn't mean that everybody's getting their docs funded, right? Like you say, three people doing a film about two sisters with epilepsy, they're not getting a $10 million buy from Sundance, are they? There's still, there's still the haves and the haves not. Very much so. And and these are young, really talented women. I mean, they're just really talented. And they'll get there. We've done everything we can to get their film seen um, and to help them. And and I, you know, I, I think it'll be, it's, you know, it, it's never easy and it shouldn't be easy. But it just seems that if you you don't have the right talent attached, you're not going to get noticed. And so it's not just on the passion for the idea. It needs a number of different things involved, whether it's a good shepherd as an executive producer or a rock star director or, you know, access to something that no one else has access to. And and also, to be fair, the streamers have so much control on and understanding of what audiences are watching. They're kind of not dictating, and I use that word again, they're kind of instructing the type of content they want and how they want it presented, which is also interesting because it's altering the format slightly. A lot of it's much more controlled. 
you know, scripted, you know, and, and that seems to have struck a chord. Does Discovery Plus make a difference to the um, to the business that you're in? We've been speaking to their commissioners and they're talking feature docs, which Discovery Channels weren't really before for many years. So in theory, another outlet to buy, but also it's a service that seems to be very focused on things like 90 Day Fiance and things like that. So is it is it a reality streamer? Is it a faction streamer? Does it, does it change the game in any way for you? I, I, I don't know if it changes the game, but I think they're great. I think their commissioning editors are really clever. I think that they spent the right amount of time looking at the marketplace and what was diminishing and what was needed. And, and so I, I'm really encouraged. I, I don't know if it's a game changer yet. I, I hope it is. And I hope that this subscription base works to their projections. But, you know, they've got a big company behind them. They've got really, you know, as long as they've got the support of their company and they've got a good, good runway, you know, a good few years to run, I, I think that they'll become a major force. Absolutely. I don't know if it's a game changer, but I think it's a it's an, it's a most welcome addition to where we are. I'm really happy they're here. And I like them. They're great. We're talking on the day that the BBC have basically said no more original commissions for BBC4. It's going to be an archive channel, which sounds very much like a repeats channel. It's the new trendy way of saying a repeats channel, I think, with the, with the problems thrown in there. They have also, in the interest of balance, said that they're upping their arts and music commissioning funding for BBC2. What, what effect does, does the UK public broadcaster basically it seems giving up on the BBC4 idea have on you and on the genre in general? Well to, to be incredibly controversial and just to state the fact that I think I love the BBC first of all because they've been really supportive of my work. The BBC 15 years ago 10 years ago they should have transformed into a streaming service globally that's what they should have done. The BBC was the most respected broadcasting brand anywhere it didn't matter where you went in the world if you were working with the BBC there was a badge of respectability and quality attached to whatever project it was. And BBC4 had an opportunity to become a unique place for documentaries. And it just didn't. I think Richard Klein would have liked, when he was controller, would have was keen and, and, and incredibly supportive and quite smart about it. But, you know, you say that, you know, BBC4 is becoming a, an archive channel or whatever it is, a rerun channel, whatever they want to call it. Yet they're bringing BBC3 back and turning it into a linear channel, a terrestrial channel again at the same time. So, you know, I, I think that however the BBC would like to spin what they're doing I think that they're correcting some missteps that maybe might have happened and I think I think the BBC4 will be and its commissioning of documentaries in particular and international documentaries I, I think there'll be a hole there I think it's I, I don't think it's a great thing and I think that you know I think it's fantastic that arts and music are, are, are going to have more funding but it doesn't necessarily mean that international stories are going to be told there that's what's going to be missing you know and you need international stories there's very few places that you're going to find them in, in the United Kingdom. It, it saddens me that Channel, BBC4 is no longer going to commission documentary because I wonder where I wonder where places like Storyville are going to show their films. And while Sky Docs will pick up, of course, some slack, you know, they already have, you know, the, the, the more people involved in making these types of films, better it is for everyone. Lawrence Ellman from Docsville, speaking with Clive Whittingham. Derry Girls is a Northern Ireland-based sitcom about teenagers set against the backdrop of the Troubles in the early 1990s. Created by Lisa McGee for the UK's Channel 4 and produced by Hattrick Productions, the series has so far run to two seasons and is gearing up for a third, having found success globally on Netflix. McGee spoke to Ollie Hammett about why the show has resonated with audiences all around the world and the appeal of hyperlocal comedies. When you wrote or 
created Dairy Girls. Did you ever see this sort of global exposure for it? Not at all, no. And I think I feel like if I had a thought about that, it would have been crippling, you know, and I, I wouldn't have, you know, the show wouldn't have done what it what it kind of has gone on to do. I feel like what I was concentrating on that maybe helped the global thing is I wanted it to feel very specific and authentic for an Irish audience. But obviously it's Channel 4 show. It had to reach a UK audience or it wouldn't survive. So in trying to get that balance right, I guess we've done something, you know, now we're like the show can go out across the world and people seem to identify with something on it. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely wasn't intentional. And I kind of worry a bit about that being the starting point now, you know, because I feel like that might kill some of the most interesting ideas off before you've even got started really you know that's really interesting so what is it about these shows that make them special to you what do you think would be lost I feel like the minute you start talking about things being universal or global as the the priority that things that are specific get diluted a little bit maybe and I feel like what's special about shows that like one of my favorite sitcoms of the last few years has been this country that's being remade in America isn't it so it's like there's just something about being able to peer and uh, I had no idea that world existed in rural England. Do you know, I had the sort of Midsummer Murders vision of rural England in my in my mind. And so although I didn't understand that world, I got all the jokes, you know, because their storytelling so good. So if, I, I feel like shows like that, it feels like you're getting to peek into something you, you, you don't know about and learn something as well, you know. This country and Derry Girls have both gone on to be really successful in the US. And I wonder, Americans, for example, have a sort of fascination with Britain and British customs. How much of a role do you think that has to play? For us, for our show, it's slightly different, doesn't it? So we have this big Irish-American thing. So we have this whole other audience that we're just ready for stuff. And I think that's very different from the sort of American obsession with Britishness because we're considered an Irish show there. But, um, you know, but obviously it's our show's complicated because it's a Northern Irish show. But yeah, so I, I feel like they're definitely charmed by both Irish and British stuff and I, I don't know if it's just because we feel a bit odd or weird to them or what it is but yeah and then there seems to be a real desire for it there now I mean it's it's great it's it's interesting I feel like that when you talk to producers American producers and stuff they definitely feel like we're doing the weirder quirkier <laughs> Stop. I'm interested in what inspired you to write Dairy Girls in the first place then. Is it from your own background? Yeah, it was. It's probably a bit of a slow, boring story. I had another sitcom on Channel 4 called London Irish that just didn't do what we wanted it to do. You know, it, it only got one series, but we loved that show and the channel loved the show. And everyone was really disappointed that it didn't kind of grab the audience the way we wanted it to. So Channel 4 kind of said, well, commission you to write something else. It can be anything you a pilot script so I kind of went away and had a think and worked with my two execs who were on London Irish as well and initially it was going to be like a detective series with teenagers solving crimes badly like a comedy series like a famous five set in Derry but that kind of fell away you know and um, we concentrated just more on the family and the school friends but yeah it, it was my that that family is based on my family that group of friends is you know the school's basically the school I went to it's very badly disguise so 
a lot of it was my real experience just twisted out of shape and exaggerated here and there to, to see what was funniest, you know. So with the international success that the show has had for the first two seasons, do you feel differently about writing the third one? Do you feel like you have to cater for a different audience? No, I, I can't let myself think like that because, you know, it's such a personal show for me. So my priority is really and has always been the Northern Irish audience and getting it right for them because they feel like this show's representing them in a way that they haven't, you know, they haven't seen themselves on screen like this before. So that's my kind of priority. And yeah, beyond that, I try not to think too much of it. I feel like if I'd written this with the intention of it being a global show or a bigger show, that w- it would be different. But I just try and remember what it was that I wanted to do. And that's why it worked. Um, and if I kind of overthink it, I think it would dilute everything. And yeah. Do you get any sort of contact from American viewers sort of about their fascination with the show and what's their reaction like? Oh, loads and loads and loads. And I feel like at the start, it felt like a, a kind of cult hit on Netflix. Like there, there was a lot of people um, who liked it, but it wasn't like a big breakout show. You know, it was a slow burn thing. But since lockdown, it's all changed. And it, every week there's like, letters from people sent to my agent from mostly America but there be other places and I'm getting contacted by a lot of American people in the industry because everyone's talking about the show um, so that sort of people sitting at home wanting to watch something joyful has really helped us in that respect. But yeah, I feel like it's um, for for the Irish Americans who have been with the show since the start, it's that they feel like, you know, it's part of their culture, I guess. And, and now for the other people who are just coming to it, I think the female cast is a big thing for them. And I think the joy and the music, the nostalgia, but more and more people have said to me, you know, we're just looking for hopeful, funny stuff. And the gag rate in Derry Gear is very high. So some people are sort of returning to it's very traditional actually, Derry Gears that likes jokes, you know. So people are returning to older comedies that are joke heavy. And I think um some people, you know, were, were saying to me, like, it's you know you're gonna laugh. <laughs> you know, it, it's as simple as that. So there's lots of different responses to it. I've been told by countless people that comedy doesn't travel and that shows like Fleabag, Dead Pixels you know comedy shows that are much more dramatic and contain some sort of real issues but it's really interesting to hear you talk about how the pandemic sort of made people go the other way yeah I think it it definitely did and there, there's a real comfort thing in that like and what one thing I think you know I now that I'm hearing this response to Derry Gears particularly from America I, I grew up with watching American shows and they're all my favorite shows so naturally even though Derry Gears feels like a mad thing for an American audience to watch it's modeled on those shows there's there's always sort of a I call it a pickle there's always something everything leads to and it gets out of hand and you know there's very clear characterization and it's not like character driven it depends on story and all this so you can kind of go oh I can see why someone who likes American stuff or 90s American stuff might actually like Derry Gears you know because it's quite as I say traditional and comforting and bright and everything's always okay in the end you know so what what American sitcoms inspired you then so the, the main one would be Seinfeld. I'm a massive fan of that. And obviously Friends was a big one. Cheers and Frasier. I loved Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom. It was just called Ellen.
Fallon, Roseanne, early Roseanne, you know, all those, those 90s shows, I couldn't get enough of them. You sort of mentioned it briefly, but what features of those shows inspired you when you made Derry Girls? I love the storytelling in Seinfeld. Like, I love how within that, you know, whatever it is, 23 minutes, they take you on this complete journey. So it's not only funny, you're actually wondering how this thing's going to pan out or come together or whatever. It's like just masterful. That I love. And there's something nearly like in every episode of Seinfeld feels like an urban myth, which I love. You go, oh God, these are the people, the things happen to that you might hear about, you know, like it's it's an amazing show. And Friends, I like the, I love um, gang shows too. I love friendship. I'm very interested in friendship and the American shows all seem to, whether it's like a family at its heart or a group of friends, it's, it's all about a tight knit group of people. Yeah. And then I, I like, I really like their fast dialogue, the pacing of it. And going back to Dairy Girls, because obviously it was on Channel 4 in the UK and then it was picked up by Netflix. Do you see that as the point where it sort of reached a much more global audience? Yeah, I don't think it would have had that impact at all if it wasn't for, for Netflix. It would have been very successful here and that would have been brilliant. But yeah, definitely, I don't think we'd be getting letters from Mexico for Netflix, yeah. which is just so weird. Some of the Mexican fans sent us pictures of Mexican living rooms and they were exactly like Catholic Irish loving it like it was so weird. I don't know how involved you were in the sort of deal with Netflix but what was their what was their attitude and to the show and why do you think they picked it up they had read a script very early on the pilot and I know they loved it but um I, I'm not sure why really they because there's two ways you can do that they can be involved like in a co-production way or they can just acquire it so they they just acquired it for us which kind of means they're very very hands-off we have no dealings with them really and they just sort of go okay it's amazing you know um so I don't know if that would be the case if they're with a show from the conception you know I'm sure they're all over it if they are but for us it was kind of amazing because we got to just do the show we wanted to do but it went out on Netflix as well so it's worldwide weirdly except for the UK but after a while Netflix UK gets it too but Channel 4 has to have it for so long before UK have you have you always written for Channel 4? No, I've kind of, I've written for um, the BBC and I've written for um, the Irish broadcaster, RTE. I created a show show for them years ago. Yeah, and I've I've done a lot for Channel 4. I feel very at home in Channel 4. I loved Channel 4 growing up, you know, and um, it, it just always felt like the channel, certainly growing up, your parents weren't thrilled about you watching, which always felt like a good thing. And I feel their comedy just is that, it's the comedy that kind of can, couldn't sit necessarily anywhere else maybe it's like we but weirder or bolder or darker or and they definitely I, f- I feel they really do put their money where their mouth is in terms of trying to find new voices and people from communities that might be slightly underserved by television you know and uh, you know as a, as a sort of woman from a working class background Northern Irish you know it's they've been very supportive of me and I mean my stuff might not have had a home elsewhere you know and when I did write for all their places it was on different kinds of stuff you know you, you wrote, I wrote on period dramas and this that and the other but it, you know and just lastly um, Derry Girls is an almost completely female led show female created it's very much at the vanguard of a kind of movement in lots of other shows to sort of redress a balance you could say so where would you where 
would you eventually like to see that going? I think about this a lot. And what I think is we see a lot of these shows now, right, that are that are female-led and they're all brilliant. So that makes you think that there's more happening. But in my opinion, it's so hard that you have to be kind of so good to get to that. So, so shows like Fleabag and I May Destroy You and I Hate Susie and all that, they're there because they're kind of better. Do you know what I mean? Because those writers have found three more to get them there. And that's what I think anyway. But um, it's tougher. So I feel like we need to get to a point where it doesn't have to be amazing or like groundbreaking for a show to be all, all female cast. It can just be like a detective show, like your standard detective show or a horror or whatever. And it's we need to be filling up more space. I feel there's a lot of great stuff happening, but we're, we're still at a small percentage of the writers on, on TV, you know, that make television in the UK. And apart from season three of Derry Girls, have you got anything else on the horizon? Horizon, anything else planned? So I'm working on a thriller with my husband's a writer as well, and we're doing a new thriller. It's very different, very serious and grown up. It's like a mystery crime thriller thing. I can't really talk about it too much. Yeah, but it, it it's completely not a comedy. It's very different from from Derry Gears. We're in the, the middle of that. We had another show that was a thriller as well on Channel Five in August called The Deceive that we created as well, and that was similar, like a relationship thriller, I suppose you call it but yeah it's really different it's different because I write with him so there's someone sharing the, the workload a bit and it's just a different set of annoying things to try and figure out like it's just in comedy it's hard because you have to make people laugh all the time and in a thriller you have to keep people guessing and that that's hard so and then I'm just developing a few other of my own sort of mad stupid half comedy ideas too. Lisa McGee creator of Derry Girls speaking with Ollie Hammett. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 